Let's give our attention to God's word this morning. Around the beginning of May, a friend sent me a link to a thread on Twitter where at David Gass 3 had posted this, this thread in which he announced, I am not a Christian anymore. After 40 years of being a devout follower, 20 of those being an evangelical pastor, I am walking away from the faith. He went on to say, I was fully devoted to studying the scriptures. I think I missed maybe 12 Sundays in 40 years. I had completely memorized 18 books of the Bible and was reading through the Bible for the 24th time in my life when I walked away. I devoured all the Christian apologetics books that came out. None of them answered my questions regarding the nature of God and the problems I found within the scriptures. I found these books to be trite, dismissive, and full of pseudoscience and evidence. The more I read and studied the scriptures, the more questions I had literally from the first chapter to the last, so many problems. I pastored mega churches and tiny churches. I did college ministry, camp ministry, youth ministry, music ministry, preaching ministry, church planting, everything in the church except work in the nursery. And what I saw was people desperate for the system to work for them. I wrote blogs, I was published, I formed curriculum, I taught workshops, I was an up-and-comer reforming my denomination and the whole time hoping at some point it would click and become true for me. This massive cognitive dissonance, my beliefs not matching with reality, created a separation between my head and my heart. Eventually, I could not maintain the facade anymore. I started to have mental and emotional breaks. My internal stress started to show in physical symptoms. Being a pastor, a professional Christian, was killing me. I've lost everything, he concluded. I gave literally everything to serving Jesus, and walking away has cost me everything. This is one of the more painful, gut-wrenching experiences of this Christian pilgrimage, what uh, some have retitled John Bunyan's book, The Dangerous Journey, the version for kids. This, this dangerous journey, it's, it's a painful experience when someone who, for all purposes, looked like they were following Jesus, suddenly takes offense at Jesus and turns away and abandons him. And, and I'm aware this morning that for our church, that's not an abstract reality. That, that's an excruciating experience that many of you are, are personally familiar with, a loved one, a friend who has turned away from Jesus. And when others turn back from following Jesus, that can have a, a disorienting effect on the rest of us. It raises questions. It may provoke doubts. Yet, as we saw last week in the text that Greg preached from John 6, Jesus makes this incredible promise that is anchored in his unconquerable power to keep us. Jesus promises to keep and preserve all who trust in him. John 6, 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Out. And Jesus says in verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So how does Jesus do that? How does he keep and preserve us in the faith, even when we see that there are some who look like they were following Jesus, take offense at him and turn back? 
Well, one of the discernible ways that God does this, that that he keeps you and preserves you, is by addressing this. Not ignoring it. Not brushing over it because it's uncomfortable to think about. But he addresses this painful reality right in the pages of Scripture. And he speaks in order to show you what persevering faith looks like. Even when others abandon Jesus. I'd like you to turn with me to John Chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. I want you to hear what God says about this reality in order that you may persevere in faith to the end. These words, the words contained in the pages of Scripture, they are spirit and they are life. They are the very words of eternal life. And so that's how we Turn to them now. This is God's word. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed And have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Lord, to whom shall we go? of all of the places that we could be this holiday weekend, of all the things we could be doing, of all of the the sources of news and information and entertainment, where else would we go? To whom would we turn but to you? We are here because we want to hear You, you have the words of eternal life, your words, the words that you speak, the words that you have recorded and preserved for us, they are spirit and they are life and we need them. We need them like like our bodies need food. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth and so we pray that you would feed us and nourish us with your word this morning and accomplish in us, as Logan just prayed, accomplish your purpose for which you send forth your word. Get that done in us, that your word would 
fall like rain on our hearts and that instead of thorns and thistles, there would be life-giving fruit of righteousness that abounds in us for your glory and for our good. Amen. So I'm convinced that the aim of this narrative at the end of John 6, which contains this long teaching by Jesus on the bread of life, and he, he talks about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, the aim of this narrative is to encourage you to keep on pressing on in faith in Jesus, to persevere in faith, even when other people do turn away. And the way that John accomplishes that goal of encouraging you to persevere in your faith is through contrast. This is like a direct application of the very things that Jesus just taught. You can't come to me unless the Father draws him. All that come to me, I will keep them. I won't lose any of those that the Father gives to me. And then here it is, in practice, lived out in a story that is full of sharp contrast between two different responses to Jesus. There's belief in this story, and there's unbelief. There's allegiance to Jesus and there's apostasy. There's faithfulness and there's fickleness. It's just sharp contrast. It's kind of like one of those relief sculptures where everything else is carved away so that the image the artist wants you to see just pops out in relief. That's what John's doing here. He's setting in contrast two different responses to Jesus because he wants you to respond to Jesus like one of these. And so he's highlighting it through this contrast. It's kind of like in Ansel Adams' black and white photograph where the sharp contrast is what causes the image that the photographer is seeing to just stand out in our minds. So this text does have some dark lines, some shadows, some discouraging features. I mean, it's all about apostasy in mass. It records a time when many disciples of Jesus grumble against Jesus, take offense at Jesus, no longer believe in Jesus, turn back and no longer walk with Jesus. Those are the words that John uses in this text. Two things about that are striking to me. First is the fact that John calls these people disciples of Jesus on three different occasions. These are not the Jews out there who are interested and curious on the fringes. These are not the people that we've seen already come up who are plotting to kill him and seeking to persecute him. John refers to them as his disciples. Three times, disciples of Jesus. Second, he emphasizes the large quantity of them. Twice, he says, many of his disciples. This is a significant number of people who had been following Jesus. And then from the fact that he on a couple occasions here, refers to the 12, leaves us with the impression that after this exodus of the many, the 12 were probably about the only ones left. And that's a big deal. If you're starting to like launch a, a ministry, a, a movement, and everybody walks away except for 12, that's a little bit of a disheartening experience, right? I, I wonder if the 12 kind of looked at Jesus like, should we Go get them? Should we chase them? Should we apologize maybe? I mean, you said some hard things there. This was a big movement of people away from Jesus. And if that's not disheartening enough, the scene ends with Jesus making this ominous prophetic announcement. One of you that is inside the 12, one of you is a devil. It's bad enough that a bunch of people walked away, but now... One of us, I mean, I just imagine them all kind of looking at each other. 
Which one is it? Doesn't that sow suspicion in the group? So not only was Jesus abandoned by the many, but Jesus hints twice in this text that he's going to be betrayed. Abandonment is one thing. Betrayal from within is another thing. This is the kind of thing that just kills momentum and morale. When others turn away from Jesus, if you've gone through that experience, maybe you've, you've felt that it can threaten your own faith and shake your own confidence and raise questions in your mind. This narrative, is, it's somber, it's heavy, it's, it's dark, but what stands out in contrast against that dark backdrop is hope and faith and confidence in Jesus. First and foremost, the confidence of Jesus himself in the face of abandonment and rejection. Now just, just imagine how you would handle rejection. Or maybe just, you don't have to imagine, maybe you've experienced rejection at points in your life. You know what that feels like, and you know all of the emotions that that stirs in you. It doesn't feel good. I mean, I think most of us, it's probably safe to say, are largely driven in most of what we do in social interactions by the fear of man. We just want people to like us, to think highly of us. We know what that feels like. And here, in the face of that rejection, Jesus is calm and confident and not shaken at all. It's one of the most shocking things about this passage, what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't chase after the ones who left. He, he didn't run after them apologizing, I'm sorry if I offended you or if you misunderstood my words. He didn't retract anything that he said. He didn't try to clear up misunderstanding or offense. He just turns to the 12 and then he asks them, do you want to go away also? Do you want to go away? And I don't think Jesus asked that because he was like feeling sorry for himself and fishing for compliments. I don't think he's looking for some reassurance from them. He's not anxious about the future of his mission or his ministry. We know that because he just got done saying things like, verse 65, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. He's convinced of that. He's not shaken by this because he knows my Father is at work. My Father is drawing people to himself through me and everyone that the Father gives me I will keep, I won't lose any of them. He said that in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Or verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. So he's not shaken. But he asks, do you want to go as well? I think he asks that because it's necessary for his disciples' sake, not for Jesus' sake, but for their sake, that they affirm their allegiance to Jesus, their profession of faith. Because one thing this proves is that it's not enough to just be in the interested crowd around Jesus. Lots of those people, it turns out, didn't actually believe. And so he's turning to those who remain, asking, are any of you in that group just interested? Or do you trust me? Do you believe what I've been saying to you? And so Peter makes this profession of faith. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
That's the response John wants us to see. That's the main point of this text, not just so that we know what Peter said, but so that we would know that is the way for us to respond to Jesus for the rest of our lives. That attitude, that disposition, that inclination right there, Jesus, where else would I go? I have no other hope but you. There is no other source of divine revelation but you and your words. Nothing else can make my soul live but the words that you speak. And so, as weak as I am, as frail as I am, as sinful as I am, I'm going to look to you. This profession of faith that Peter makes here is not about Peter. He doesn't stand out as the hero of the text. Everything about Peter's profession is looking away from Peter at Jesus. Lord, where else would I go? It has the the tone of somebody who is sick turning to an expert physician. It's not about the sick person. It's about the sick person's confidence that you are the only one who can help me. So help me. And so that's what John wants you to see here so that you would respond to Jesus like that. So what first looks like a, a disheartening story of apostasy is actually, I think, a massively encouraging story of God's sovereign grace guarding and keeping and preserving those who believe in Jesus. It, it depicts for us the immediate fulfillment of what Jesus just taught, what we heard Greg preach the last couple of weeks, that the Father does, in fact, draw people to Jesus. That all that the Father gives Come to Jesus, and whoever comes, he will not cast out. And so this story, I think, confronts each of us with some serious questions. Most fundamentally, it's just asking you this. What kind of disciple are you? In this contrast between these two groups, that's the question it raises for you. What kind of disciple are you? John's teaching us what saving faith is and what it's not I think one way to word that question is like this. Do you come to Jesus as Lord or as a lucky charm? Do you come to Jesus as Lord or as a lucky charm? That is, do you come to Jesus on his terms or on your terms? That's one difference between the disciples who left and the disciples who stayed. Some of the disciples who were following Jesus at this point were there Because they wanted more free food. Jesus points that out in John 6, 25, when he, John John records for us, when they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, listen, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This is right after Jesus performed that miracle and fed the crowd of 5,000 people with all those fish and all those loaves. And he just calls out their motives. He knows their motives. We see this over and over again in the Gospel of John that Jesus knows what's going on inside of people. And he just says to them, you're seeking me because you want more food. I mean, food's great, but I offer so much more than that. These so-called disciples had no spiritual appetite at all. They had no spiritual awareness that the, the miracle they just experienced, the bread that they just ate through that miracle was a sign that Jesus was God's anointed Messiah. They just thought, this guy can feed us for free. That's what they're after. Some who are following Jesus were there because they thought he would fit nicely into their own political ambitions. John 6, 14 through 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, all the bread and the 
fish. They said, this is indeed the prophet who has come to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They wanted to make him king, but this apostasy here shows that they actually had no interest in coming to him as any sort of authority in their lives. I mean, that's what a king is, right? Somebody who has authority. But they took offense at his word and they walked away because they didn't actually want him to have any authority over them. They wanted to use him as a pawn in their political ambition. And as soon as they found out he's not going to play by our rules, we can't just plug him into our machine to accomplish our purpose of overthrowing the Romans, they were gone. They were out because they didn't want a king that was actually worthy of their worship and their allegiance and their obedience. They wanted someone that they could manipulate for their own ends. And I think people come to Jesus that way today. And in contrast to that is Peter's response. He, he has heard the words of Jesus, like 635, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he believes it. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, if Jesus is merely the means to some other end in your life, then as soon as your wishes, your desires aren't fulfilled by Jesus in precisely the way that you demand, when your life isn't improved in the time or in the way that you require, when you don't feel all the feels, then you walk away if that's how you come to Jesus. Dave Gass, that pastor that I referenced from Twitter, in that same thread, he said this, my marriage was a sham and a constant source of pain for me. I did, listen, I did everything I was supposed to. Marriage workshops, counseling, Bible reading together, date nights every week, marriage books. But my marriage never became what I was promised it would be. I don't, I don't know his heart. But it sounds to me like he had this idea, if I just do all the things I'm supposed to do, my life is going to be what I want it to be doesn't sound like he had a category for thinking or understanding the sanctifying work of God in him through a marriage that may have been less than what he hoped it would be. He just thought, Jesus should fix my life and make it what I want it to be. He hasn't done that. I'm out. One commentator sums up the disconnect in John 6 like this. What they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. What they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. That, that's the question, isn't it? What do you want from Jesus? What are you coming to him for? Are you coming to him to receive him for who he is? Are you coming to him to receive what he offers, namely life, eternal life, the very life of God? Do you come to him on his terms or on yours? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Or do you treat him like, like a lucky charm to just you know, help you pass the exam and win the big game and get the job that you want and snag the closest parking spot at the grocery store and Jesus, just help me now. Make your life a little easier. What they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. Do you want the eternal life that Jesus offers or do you prefer the, the easy life that your flesh craves? Comfort and 
career success and, you know, the, the child who grows to be the all-American athlete and valedictorian. And what do you want from Jesus? He refuses to be reduced by anyone to a vending machine or a political pawn because he will be Lord. And that's his claim here. When he, when he speaks throughout all of John chapter 6 of, of coming down from heaven, he's making a claim of deity. And then in verse 62, he speaks of ascending to where he was before. Ascending to where he was before? Where he was before? Which of us can speak of an existence before this? He is eternal and he ascends because where he was before is in glory with the Father, co-eternal with the Father, co-glorious with the Father. He is fully God and so that's how Peter comes to him. We have believed. We've come to know you are the Holy One of God. That's the kind of faith that perseveres to the end. Here's the next question. Does Jesus have your allegiance or do you take offense at him? This text reminds us that Jesus himself is polarizing. He's polarizing. He, his gospel is offensive. As much as people try to you know, sandpaper it down, smooth over the rough edges, take all the offense out of the gospel so that it becomes more popular in our society and maybe that will get people to come back to church. Anybody see that billboard? Those blue atheist billboards, I just saw one yesterday that said, like, happy news, church membership is declining. I mean, he, sadly, that atheist doesn't know the end of the story that Jesus triumphs. The earth is full of the knowledge of the glory of God, as deep as the waters that cover the sea. So I'm not worried about the state of the church. The gospel is going forth, and Jesus is king. But lots of people try to take the offense out of the gospel in order to boost church membership again. But Jesus is polarizing. I mean, his own disciples were offended to the point of leaving when he said things like, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So the cross is so offensive on so many levels. Obviously, on just a surface level, it's kind of gruesome and unpleasant to think about this figurative language of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But even literally speaking, the cross itself, the bloody death of the God-man for our sins. That's a gruesome scene to consider. But it's even deeper than that. David Mathis writes, the offense is not mainly his mention of eating flesh and drinking blood, but the accusation of deep depravity and spiritual inability. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You have no life in you. You are dead. You're dead. That's the offense of what Jesus says in John 6. You're dead and you can't live unless the Father does a work in you. More unnerving than taking his plainly figurative language in a literal sense is hearing that you are powerless and lifeless where it matters most, Matthew says. This is as offensive as it gets. But if you're offended by your need for a Savior, how will you react to the remedy that God provides to spiritually dead people? Listen to what Jesus says when he asks, do you take offense at this? You're offended by what I said about you have no life in you and you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Does that offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What would that do to you? If you're triggered by this, what would that do to you? And I think his logic here is interesting because it's a little ambiguous. Is he saying... If you could see me ascending to where I was before, then you would believe? 
Or is he saying, if you see me ascending in glory, then you would be even more offended? And I think the ambiguity is intentional. I think it's both. It is the ascension of Jesus in glory that both hardens the hearts of some and draws others to him. It is the cross of Jesus that most fully and clearly reveals the glory of God. And it's in that revelation of the glory of God's grace in Jesus, crucified for sinners, that the Father draws people to himself. That's one of the repeated themes in John's gospel, that Jesus' path to glory actually lies through the cross. He he repeatedly uses this phrase, lifted up. And every time he uses that phrase, he's referring both to his death on the cross and his exaltation. Or maybe better yet, his death on the cross as his exaltation. So he says in John 12, 23, speaking of his death, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. His death is the hour of his glory. He's exalted by humiliation. He ascends through crucifixion, and that's polarizing. For some, his death on the cross is just the, the only phrase going through my head is final nail in the coffin. It, it's the proof they need. That, that kind of scandal is, that, that's just proof he must not be God because why would he die like that? I mean, Muslims today are convinced that uh, Jesus, the prophet, never actually died on the cross. There was a, a, a lookalike substitute who quick took his spot right at the end because God would never let a prophet like that die in that way. So the crucifixion of Jesus is offensive to some, but to those drawn to Jesus by the Father, Jesus' death is when and how he fully manifests the glory of God. Look at John 12, 32. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When I'm lifted up, referring to his crucifixion, as his glory. That is when I draw all people to myself. So does Jesus have your allegiance? Ever since the the Garden of Eden, humans have been taking offense at the words of God. Remember the, the words of the serpent to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? God's word is offensive, and ever since then, people have been taking offense at God's word. The world is deeply offended by the words of scripture. I mean, what it teaches about homosexuality and what it teaches about abortion and what it teaches about our sin and our need for a savior and what it teaches about these claims of a man who is fully God. There was a group of scholars in the 80s and 90s into the early 2000s. They called themselves the Jesus Seminar and they would get together um, and they would just go word by word through manuscripts of the New Testament, and they had colored beads, and each bead represented, I think Jesus actually said that, that word. I think Jesus maybe said that word. I don't think Jesus said that word. I know Jesus didn't say that word. And they put their colored beads out, and then they would count up the points, word by word, until they had left. Their goal was to just have the, the actual words Jesus himself said. And so you can imagine what happens when a bunch of scholars who rely on their own minds get together and they, they do something like that. They just strip away everything about Jesus that's actually divine. Anything that's offensive to their human sensibilities, their reliance on self. And they sit in authority, in judgment over Jesus. It's like what Thomas Jefferson did when he actually took a copy of the New Testament and cut and pasted to make his own version of the New Testament. He just cut out all the miracles, 
because those couldn't happen. And he cut out all the offensive sayings of Jesus, and he just collected some of the wise sayings of Jesus. You can buy it on Amazon, the Jefferson Bible. But notice what you're doing. If you just strip away the words of Jesus that offend you, you've never come to him as Lord. You sit in authority over his word, which means you're just listening to yourself, right? If you go through his words and you pick the words you want to listen to, you're just listening to yourself. You've never listened to Jesus a single time. Does Jesus have your allegiance? There is exclusive devotion in Peter's profession of faith. Lord, to whom shall we go? You and you alone, you and you alone have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else. Your words may sting, they may offend, but you have words that give life. Where else would we go? I think this text raises at least one more question, and that's this. Do you rely on the spirit or on the flesh? When these false disciples grumbled against Jesus, their their reaction in verse 60 is to say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And, And they didn't mean hard like, this is a puzzling riddle. Let us go away and think about it for a while. They didn't mean this is a brain teaser. They meant this is hard like a punch in the face. That insulted us. That hurt us. And they ask this ironic question, who can listen to it? And I I think it's ironic because they don't realize, the ones asking the question don't realize just how fitting it is. It's, It's worth asking seriously, who can listen to this? What they mean is, no one can listen to this. But that's not true. Who can listen to the words of Jesus? What is required to hear and understand and receive his words? And the answer that Jesus has been drawing us to throughout all of John 5 and all of John 6 is that only the triune God who lives can make dead sinners live. You can't make yourself live. You can't say to a dead person, get up, if you could just move yourself over here, we could help you out. Dead people don't move themselves anywhere. God who lives has to make you live and every member of the Trinity is involved in this work of causing you to live. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. This is like what he said back in John 3, 6, his conversation with Nicodemus where he's saying you must be born again. He says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. There's a sharp distinction here. What Flesh and blood can only do so much, but Flesh and blood cannot cause dead souls to live. You have to be born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God does this work, but it's also the work of the Father. Jesus said in John 5, 21, the Father raises the dead and gives them life. The Father does it. John 6, 65, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. So the Father is involved in this, and it's the work of the Son, John 5, 21, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Or he says in verse 70 to the 12, did I not choose you? I chose you. I chose you and I called you to myself. It's the work of the Father and it's the work of the Spirit and it's the work of the Son because only the triune God possesses eternal life. Eternal life is not just some duration like long life it's a quality of life that flesh and blood does not have the breath in your lungs take a deep breath in and out 
That kind of life you have is a totally different kind of life than the life that God has and has always had and will always have. The very life of God that the Father, Son, and Spirit have enjoyed together forever, God possesses that life. And then by His grace, He gives that very life, the life of God, to dead sinners and causes us to live not just a really long time. It's, it's eternal in duration, but it is a totally different quality of life than anything the world has ever known. That's why flesh and blood can't do this. That's why the Father has to do something. The Spirit does something. The Son does something to you because eternal life is not a matter of striving in your own strength to raise yourself from the dead. It means being drawn by God into the very life of God. So how does He do that? How does He impart the life of God to dead sinners? I think this is offensive in its simplicity. He does it through his words. He does it through his words. John 6, 63, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Or Peter's profession, you and you alone have the words of eternal life. Words of life. Words that are spirit and life. They're spirit because these are the words that are breathed out and inspired by the very spirit of God and they're life because these words generate the very life of God. Logan prayed from that text in Isaiah 55. God's word goes forth and it does something. It gets done what God means for it to do. It's like in creation when God says, let there be light and there was light. His word causes the light. It's like in John 11, we'll get to in a, a while, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus is inside the tomb dead, and Jesus stands outside the tomb and he speaks the words, Lazarus, come out. Who gives a command to a dead person? They can't obey that. Except here comes Lazarus walking out of the tomb because the command, Lazarus, come out, raised Lazarus from the dead so that he could obey the command that was given to him to come out. The command raised him from the dead. The words gave life, and that's what happens to us spiritually through the gospel. That's why we are committed to preaching the gospel, expository, gospel-centered preaching, because that's how God makes his church live. It's why we're committed to talking about the gospel in everyday, everyday lives with, with our neighbors and our family members and our coworkers, because it's through just gospel conversations. It just seems so offensive in its simplicity that a conversation could be the way that God imparts eternal life to dead sinners, but it's just the words of Jesus on our lips in conversation that God uses to make people live, raises them from the dead. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God to produce the life of God in dead sinners. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. By spiritual, Paul doesn't mean to the elite or the more mystical among us. He means to those who have the Spirit. Spiritual truths are understood by those who have the Spirit. You have to have the Spirit to understand spiritual things. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit. That is, the words that the Spirit has revealed because they're folly to him and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Here's the way I think about this and it, examples always break down at some point, but 
bear with me. Have you ever been sent a file in a format you don't have an application to open? Like somebody sent me a .dwg file. DWG, what opens that? It was a drawing. It was an AutoCAD drawing for plans for something I was building for Knox. I had to go find an application that could read that file because nothing on my computer could open that file type. It was folly to every other application on my, program, on my computer. I needed an application to open that. Paul's saying the gospel comes and it's folly to the natural person. You need the Holy Spirit to open and understand these words. Otherwise, you will just take offense at them. So then the question is, how do you, where do you get the Spirit? And the answer in Scripture is, He comes with the message. That's how. He comes with the message. As the message is preached to you, the Spirit comes with that and opens your eyes to be able to understand and discern the meaning of the gospel and the meaning of Scripture as you turn to the pages. So if you don't understand Scripture, the tempting thing to do is to say, that's it, I, just, I tried reading it, didn't make any sense to me, I'm done, I'll walk away. Where else are you going to go? You keep going back to the Word because it's in the process of hearing and receiving the Word that the Spirit of God opens your eyes to see. What Jesus makes clear here when he says the flesh is no help at all is that you will never understand. You cannot make your own soul live by relying on the flesh or your own intellect or your own moral goodness or your own willpower or your own effort or your own talents or abilities or wisdom. The flesh is no help at all. The Spirit gives life. And these words are spirit and life. So, like Peter, go to Jesus in this way. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's how you persevere in faith, by turning to Jesus like that again and again and again. Peter makes it clear in his response to Jesus. This is one of those inescapable issues Jesus confronts us with. Nobody has the, the luxury of remaining neutral toward Jesus. You don't get to say, well, I'm not going to make a decision about that. I'm, I'm neutral toward him. Where else would you go? To walk away from Jesus, you have to choose someone or something else to be the authority in your life. So if not Jesus, who? Who are you going to listen to? Who's going to be the authority? And the answer is there are, there are only two kinds of people. Those who depend on God and his revelation in scripture and those who depend on themselves. I just know, I'm, I don't want to trust in this. I'm so full of sin and folly. And I need divine revelation from outside of me. The words that Jesus has and gives so freely. So turn to Jesus. Turn to him again and again. Turn to him on his terms and turn to him relying on his spirit and not on the flesh because to turn to him is life but to turn away from him is death. Let's pray.